welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly how it is. And this is episode 180-180. So, and as always, if you have any questions or comments, you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or you can leave them in the comments section on Podbean. Not many people do that anymore. I, I don't know if Podbean's just not very popular or what. But anyway, it's not a big deal. Um, we got a bunch of things to talk about. Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm not going to try to do a recap of the whole Israeli-Hamas uh, conflict. That's I, I just don't have the time. You, you could spend hours and hours going back through history, everything back to the Balfour Declaration in 1919, all the way up to Israeli independence in in, uh, 1948, and, you know, all the rest of it. Um, You know, I think the, the part for us to understand here is, what is the risk here of something like that happening? And, you know, some people have floated kind of the Red Dawn scenario of, well, you know, they could be using the same tactics, uh, the, the paragliders and, and all the rest of it. I don't really see that. To me, I see it as more of a, kind of a more of an individual situation. And I discussed this with our friend of the podcast. And, and what I've had to, what I've come to is, it, if you're on the wrong end of a violent act, does it really does it really matter who's perpetrating it? I mean, the consequences to you are going to be the same. Um, and we have more than enough opportunity here to be on the wrong end of a violent act. I mean, everything from carjackings to the kind of thievery that's going on to the no consequences for criminals. It's going on and on and on. The Soros-backed axis of... Uh, prosecutors across the country Um, you know those are real threats and you don't have to be the victim of a terrorist action to be the victim of a violent act I, I would I would say that basically all violent criminal acts are in some way shape or form terrorism but that's that's more of an academic debate but you could, you know, uh, worrying about paragliders and other things and Hamas, you know, sneaking, you know, building a base in Mexico and, and attacking us from the, the southern border. There's, there's nothing wrong with that sort of thinking, but also think about just how dangerous your, your daily life is, how dangerous it is from uh, break-ins, you know, just somebody, a home invasion, a carjacking. Uh, getting getting uh, robbed at the uh, the local gas station, you know, any anything like that. Those are, and, and it goes on and on and on. And it's not to <clears throat> demean or or minimalize conflict in Israel. That that's a horrible thing. Um, but the same lesson that the Israelis learned is the same one that we should be learning, and that is. Israel knows that they live in a tough neighborhood and they know who their neighbors are 
And so it's, it's really a shame that they were caught so unaware. Um, it used to be after the, after the, the you know, the, you name any Isra Arab-Israeli war you want, starting in 48, 55 with the Suez deal, 67, 73. Um, you know, there used to be that every Israeli school bus had an armed guard on it, and that was for a reason. It wasn't because they were afraid of street crime. It wasn't because they were afraid somebody would be chewing bubble gum and sticking it on the seats. It wasn't that. It was to prevent exactly what happened or deal with exactly what happened uh, this last Saturday. Uh, those those kibbutzes on the, the border, the ones that were vulnerable, um, they were basically little militia camps. And I'm not blaming them. The, the reality is, if you live in Israel, you have to accept that you are living in a militarized police state for your own security. Not because they're, they're fascists, they're not. Not because they're mean, they're not. But because that's what they have to do to have security. And I think you will see a very different Israel. The Israel that a lot of people would like to see has got nice beaches. Um, it's like a little chunk of, of, of Europe plopped into the Middle East. Well, as we've seen now, that's just never going to work the way they would like it to. Um, you know, and, and you just go back a few years, Hamas launching five or six hundred rockets into Israel every now and again. Um, and then they, they basically, when they found that that was essentially fruitless, they've done this. Now, I will also say that them doing this, this latest attack, I mean, what was the strategic goal? What was the what was their desired outcome? And the desired outcome, you know, is pretty muddled. I mean, you have you have mental defectives like Ilian Omar and Rashida Tlaib, who who should not be in our government. Okay, they have divided loyalties. They should not be in our government. Um, you know, they're saying, oh, there there needs to be a ceasefire. Yeah, let let Hamas come over, kill a whole bunch of people. Then there's going to be a ceasefire. <clears throat> I say no ceasefire at all until Hamas is expunged from the face of the earth. That's just what it needs to be. But but getting back to you and me and everybody else, it's the same thing. Um, a George Floyd riot where things are being you know burned and destroyed is just as bad as a Hamas attack. So you know the the advice that we've that we've always proffered, which is get yourself a couple of weapons <laughs> get yourself some food get yourself so the ability to store some water uh, doing those things will will help you and you know I'm well beyond making weapons recommendations you know at this point you, you can shop online and see what you can afford and what you want um, and glean from our questions and answers and other things maybe what some of the choices are but the attack on civilization all crime you know whether it's a carjacking or, or whatever else is a crime against civilization first and foremost it may be a crime against you in a property sense
but it's a crime against civilization. It's a person that, who's perpetrating that cannot live and chooses not to obey the rules of a civilized society. And that's where you see this great divide in America. Um, you go to small towns in Iowa, go to small towns in Missouri, go to small towns in Kansas, go to small towns anywhere else, out away from the cities, and there's a whole different set of rules. The cities have become these little lawless, <laughs> lawless zones where this kind of stuff is, is uh, being tolerated and in fact encouraged. Um, look at all the smash and grab thievery that's that's been going on and and that's only going to spread that's only getting worse that's not going to get better unless something unless something's done but we have this gulf of people who can live in society and respect the rules of civilization and those that don't and that's that's kind of how I see this and so the Israel Hamas thing is simply yet another example of, of this in, a, in the broad context. Okay, that brings us to, of course, our next topic, and that is our hapless government. Um, it appears to be unable and unwilling to conduct cogent foreign policy. Uh, you know, it was just a couple months ago, was it a month and a half ago, they gave Iran five or six billion dollars. Now they're scrambling trying to get it back, which they won't. Um, we, we were giving all kinds of aid to these to this Palestinian state, which clearly is spending it on terror. Um, we have to stop this. Uh, we're giving money away to Ukraine that's being that's being absolutely diverted and skimmed off of to keep to keep their ruling elites and their oligarchs you know in the chips i mean this stuff has to stop functionally as a country we're we're broke i mean we borrow money uh to cover our our deficit spending and that money that we borrow we give away i mean it's insanity uh, no business would run that way no business could run that way no charity could run that way nothing except a bloated, incompetent, bureaucracy-driven government could operate that way. And yet, when we have people who try to clean the swamp, um, they're vilified in the media, and every institution of government uh, goes out to persecute them. You know, we need to think about the country we're living in. We need to think about it long and hard because what we're seeing is something that is non-sustainable. Uh, we won't have a country. You know, I, you know the, the old thing is, what would you do if you were president? Well, first of all, I'd stop giving away money to everybody. Stop The, the money giveaways stop. We're not going to threaten Social Security and Medicare because, you know, we need to have rich Ukrainians in the world and rich Palestinians and all the rest of it. We'd stop all that. Everything would be stopped and every overseas dollar program of who's who we're giving what would be 
would go through a comprehensive review. Uh, that's the first thing. It has to stop. The next thing is I would look at I would look at NASA very, very carefully. Um, what is it in that that is producing technology and what is it that's not? I mean, we have billionaires now who can shoot things up in space. Um, we have private companies that are resupplying the, the goofy International Space Station and all this stuff. Do we need to be spending billions on the space? And what is it in space that we need? We need spy satellites and all these other things. Uh, what is the rest of it we need? And I would say that I think you could probably cut it back by a third and <clears throat> our national interest would still be served. Um, you know, we've been to the moon. <laughs> it's, I never thought I would see it in my life that I've lived long enough to, to see that the Apollo astronauts, I think there's... There's just a few of them left, um, and it's it's kind of sad, really, because we we went to the moon, and let's just be real. We found out there's nothing there. There's nothing on the moon. It's a great big rock, great big round circular rock, and we went there, and there's no impetus to go back because there's nothing we can do there. Um, we're not going to build a moon base. We can't. We can't do that. We can't live out there. Uh, science fiction aside, it's not a place for us. It's like trying to live at the bottom of the ocean. It just it's not going to work out well in the long run. So I would I would look at that. But you know our zombies can't do it. And you know, we just got rid of Feinstein. You know yes, there is a god I guess after all. <clears throat> we got rid of Feinstein, the horrible gun-grabbing uh, hypocrite. But we still have Fetter Zombie. We still have Biden Zombie, Harris Zombie. These people are, the, I mean, they, they, they just don't measure up. They just do not measure up to... Um, I mean, this is the kind of leadership we have in Washington with the Democratic Party is the kind of leadership that you would expect at waste management, you know, a garbage company. That's what they, that's what you would expect. I mean, that's how grotesquely overmatched the task is for these people. I mean, they are so underperforming. And, and frankly, I think I think even waste management. You could take you could take the leadership of waste management, put them in the government, and they'd do a better job, without question, without question. Or the dollar store, Dollar General. You could take their corporate structure, put it in Washington as the executive branch, and it would do a whole lot better than the Democratic Party. Uh, well, let's get into some gun stuff. Um, I was talking about my the good fortune I have with my 6.5 Creedmoor rifle, which is an outstanding piece of kit. And, and I've gone in previous podcasts of what I started with and how I basically assembled this rifle. A lot of people use the word build, but I didn't manufacture anything. I just, I got the base rifle I wanted and I accessorized it and replaced things and, and put things on it to the point where it's what I want. Um, a brilliant piece of kit, really. 
It really is. But it, it does fall into the trap that I think a lot of gun people fall into. Now, here's what I mean by the trap. For me, for precision rifle shooting, 6.5 Creedmoor rifle I have is it. But I would not use 6.5 Creedmoor in a battle rifle. And there are some. There's, I think you can get this Springfield Armory M1A in 6.5 Creedmoor. Um, you know, there are a lot of, yeah, I know you can get AR-10 type rifles in 6.5 Creedmoor. Uh, you, can, you can do all that, and you can get them in other things too. Uh, the six six millimeter arc and all these other things. The problem is those types of rifles can usually consume quite a bit of ammo. And the ammo that we are looking at is very expensive. Even the, the least expensive 6.5 Creedmoor is still, still the, the hunting quality stuff, still pretty expensive. And I assume that's what you would use if you had a 6.5 Creedmoor battle rifle. Um, so it's very expensive. So does it really make sense? Do the advantages of these cartridges really make sense? Well, in a niche, it does. I like shoot, uh, I have no doubt that 6.5 Creedmoor outperforms 7.62 NATO for distance shooting because in reality, most distance misses are due to trajectory errors as opposed to anything else. So the flatter trajectory you have, uh, you decrease your your number of misses. It's just it's kind of that simple. It's not a it's not a very hard calculus to come up with. However, when it comes to striking power and it comes to affordability and it comes to just you know kind of being a little bit more of an all-around cartridge 7.62 NATO is is excellent. It is actually one of the best cartridges around. Um, and it still is after all these years, after 70 years. It is a great cartridge. And, you know, it's still pretty affordable. Still pretty affordable. The same problem I have is in the regular AR platform, there's all these cartridges now that are engineered and, and, you know, you can debate whether 6.5 Grendel or 6mm Arc is superior to 5.56 for whatever application you have. Those, those are all arguments you can have. The problem is go out and just price the ammo. Um, and that'll kind of tell you which, which is the smarter buy. Uh, unless you have a niche application that requ absolutely requires uh, one of these other cartridges, uh, you're better off with 5.56. You just are. Same thing in the uh, pistol world, you know. Uh, a lot of people really, the new hotness, we called it um, several years ago, was the, uh, you know, I don't know. It was the FN 5.7 by 28. And it, it's got a lot going for it including high price <laughs> including you know price that compared to a box of nine millimeter um, and and that's kind of gonna tell you which direction to go in um, unless you are law enforcement or military and have a need for the higher performance 
5.7 by 28 rounds. Um, I don't think you're gaining much over 9mm by using that cartridge. In fact, I would say for PDW reasons, as a personal defense weapon, little carbine, it is probably, I think, inferior to the 30 caliber M1 carbine. That's just my opinion. I mean, that 30 caliber M1 carbine was, was definitely a, a different class of weapon when it came out. And nobody really kind of understood that. And I think even people today just kind of grudgingly admit that it was really uh, very innovative for its time. So I, as much as I like the 6.5 Creedmoor, and I use it when I want to shoot a small group at a far distance, which is something that's eminently pleasurable, I will have to admit to you. That is one of the great things in life, is to shoot a small group at a long distance. Um, but unless I'm doing that, uh, 7.62 NATO is a a very very nice cartridge to use and all the work has been done people know what the match loads are if you want to go that route but just for ball ammunition it functions well and the weapons that it that were designed for it and uh, does does an exceptional job it really does uh, some exciting news as you may well know I am not a big fan of these uh, conversion cylinders for cap and ball pistols. Uh, they take you take your cap and ball pistol, you pop out the old um, cap and ball cylinder, and you put in one of these contraptions that will allow it to fire um, cartridges. You know, regular center fire, self-contained cartridges. Uh, the reason I don't, I've never been big on them, is even though that modern cap and ball pistols. Um, use good steel they're still not as strong as a modern revolver um, the steel is not quite as good it's good but it's not quite as good as you would get in a um, modern factory revolver the other the other thing is the design of those older guns are they have some inherent design weaknesses which in the last 150 years have been kind of over overcome by more as as more modern designs hit the market so I'm not a real big fan of those things because I, I've told you the story. Um, I saw a guy trying to put some plus P plus loads into one one time. Um, and, and the manufacturers of them say, well, cowboy loads only. Well, the part of the public which would disregard that or not know what a cowboy load is or think that a cowboy load is what you buy off the shelf and it may indeed be something else is... You know that's always debatable when they first started doing these they did actually something that was smart and that is they would take the 51 navy you know which was a 36 caliber and they rechambered it for the weak 38 smith and wesson revolver cartridge not 38 special but 38 smith and wesson and that's a cartridge you couldn't get into a lot of trouble with uh in in these older guns however uh then they started 38 special well then then you start getting into 45 cold and it becomes a problem um, the the problems I've already mentioned of steel quality and design and they're also uh, kind of magnified by the fact that uh, if you shoot jacketed bullets 
if rounds loaded with jacketed bullets in these things you you will wear that barrel very quickly because it's not the same quality steel as a modern handgun but be all that as it may um, and, and the chamber walls on them especially in 45 Colt are very very thin I mean they're just they're just scary but Kirst converter has made one for the 44 slash 45 caliber guns which is in 45 ACP which I think actually I'm still not a huge fan I'm, I'm still not a fan but at least I can see this a lot better because loading 45 ACP and 45 ACP loads that you can buy um, you know you won't get into trouble with that like you would 45 Colt or, or something else now you're still gonna have a problem the, the other problem nobody really likes to talk about is that the bore diameters of these cap and ball revolvers are usually greater than their modern equivalents so you know you can shoot a 45 Colt load in a reproduction Colt Walker with one of these conversion cylinders but your bore is going to be larger uh, in that Walker and you may have a, a, a difference and that's going to translate into an accuracy problem um, usually you use 454 or 457 balls in a walker and if you're shooting a 452 um, bullet out of it which is what a 45 Colt will have uh, you're gonna have a problem back in the old days they used to be 454 but that's that's another a whole nother conversation so consequently um, you know 40 you're still gonna have the same accuracy problems um, but at least you won't have the pressure problems and 45 ACP is is you know a good cartridge for for that use but you know these things are just economically the other thing is it makes no sense to buy a cap and ball revolver and then go buy one of these cylinders because you're gonna spend more than what you would if you bought one of the factory made conversion style revolvers because they make those um, and they make them with the correct uh, cylinder throats they make them you know with mostly the correct bores so your accuracy is going to be a whole lot better and there by the time you add everything up you're going to save yourself a couple of hundred bucks by buying the one the, the conversion off the shelf rather than um, the cap and ball revolver and the cylinder so the cylinder would make some economic sense if you if you already have the cap and ball revolver but you have to change out some internal and it at least one internal part the pawl to to index the cylinder that's moving around you also I mean the difference by the time you get that cylinder the conversion cylinder you're paying probably 375 let's say 400 dollars shipping a lot of times you can buy these conversion revolvers for just over 500 so for another 150 bucks you can have something that I think you'll be a lot happier with so that's just the that's just the uh, my thoughts on that is sometimes people think it a little too hard um, and buying the correct thing up front would is probably wiser 
Okay, let's talk about, um, I had a question last time about was the 38 Special ever adopted by any military? And as far as I know, it was not. I mean, it's 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 been around. Every It's one of those things that everyone has used it, but nobody really put their name on the dotted line and said, this is our official military cartridge. But it's, it's overall excellence is one that I, I really uh, appreciate. I mean, I think the 38 Special may be the greatest handgun cartridge of all time. It just might be. It's being rivaled now by 9mm. And by greatest, I mean widespread, uh, a cartridge that has that balance of power and accuracy and is available a lot of places in its heyday the 38 special you could get almost everywhere nowadays it's nine millimeter you can get that probably worldwide i i can't probably russia probably china you can't because you can't get it there anyway but in most other parts of the world um if you run across handgun ammunition it's probably going to be nine millimeter so um and in in the in the old days 38 special was Maybe not quite as widespread, but it was it was out there. I mean, every police organization used. I mean, they they come back into the country occasionally. Smith and Wesson Model Tens, which were, you know, sold to police agencies in, you know, Central South American countries, um, African or Middle Eastern countries or Asian countries. Um, you can still run. You know, they still bring those back in very occasionally. Um, you'll see they find a cachet of them, you know. So, 38 Special, um, even though it was not an adopted service cartridge, um, it really is a, a very excellent cartridge. And it's probably the most successful non-adopted cartridge that's ever been. I mean, every other successful cartridge, 45 ACP, 9mm, of course, and anything else you want to throw in there, um, has probably been, you know, adopted by a a bunch of militaries at some point in the past. A 38 special, no, and it's it's right up there with those other ones. Okay, now that we are done with the 38 special and and uh, converter <laughs> cylinders for today, uh, let's get on to my favorite part, which is questions and answers. And here's a very interesting one. I recently purchased a U.S. Krag bayonet in a leather scabbard. Was this how they were issued, or was the, were they ever used like this? I always thought the Krag scabbard was metal. Um, that's very interesting because I have the same thing that I bought some time ago. Um, it's possible to find Krag bayonets with what appears to be a leather scabbard. What that scabbard actually is, is a US M1912 picket pin scabbard. Um, the Krag bayonet fits it really pretty well. Um, so you'd say, well, how come there are a bunch of these floating around? The conventional wisdom is that as Krag bayonets were surplused, the Krag bayonet scabbard was notoriously frail. So it was quite possible um, for a surplus dealer to have 
a large quantity of crag bayonets with no scabbards or broken scabbards, in which case they substituted these picket pin uh, scabbards and sold them. And, and it was usable. I mean, it was usable. I, I think there's probably a deeper explanation. Uh, there's no real evidence to support this, but given that picket pin holsters or picket pin scabbards, I should say, were pretty widespread because that's kind of a consumable item. Uh, I think during the the chaos of the training for World War One, I, I would not doubt that the um, that the military, when they used Krag rifles for training, probably made up <clears throat> for any shortfall in scabbards with these picket pin deals. Um, scabbards and said hey use this instead you know you don't have a scabbard we don't have scabbards for this these 300 bayonets well we'll just use these uh nobody really cared enough to to document this there's there's very little photographic evidence of people training with with crag rifles for world war one even though some crag rifles actually made it made it to france they were they were swapped out for 1917 m1917 rifles but they actually kind of made it there, so it's not a it's not a big stretch of the imagination to think that these that these were used in that manner, and maybe that's where surplus dealers um, got the idea from. Maybe a bunch of them came in in these things, and they said, "Well, we've got more, we got more bayonets without scabbards, and we've got more of these picket pin scabbards, so we'll just mate the two together." Uh, the the story that has kind of gone around with them, which I I think may only contain partial truth, is well, mounted troops. These were used by mounted troops uh, because it fit with their M nineteen twelve saddle gear and all that. Um, I think the 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 problem with that is most mounted troops used crag carbines, which did not take a bayonet. But it's quite possible in in the uh, you know you gotta remember in World War One we actually had troops armed with Winchester 94 30 30s which were standing guard up in the Pacific Northwest so it's very possible that uh, um, there were some sort of mounted troops or some troops that were using horses that had crag rifles and the scabbards for a crag um, uh, you know rifle so um, it's it's entirely possible that there could be a grain of truth to that story. If you were in some sort of mounted unit and you didn't have a carbine, you had crag rifles and uh, you needed to carry a bayonet for it, you could use one of these very effectively. So um, it's 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 probably they were probably used in training by the U.S. military and perhaps stateside wherever they used crag rifles, you know. Um, I don't know I don't, the exact use of the Krag rifle in World War One is very sketchy. You know, uh, it should have been long obsolete, but you know, like every other country, they were brought out of brought out of retirement and used for various things. So um, it's quite possible that that uh, the leathers, the leather picket pin scabbard, and by the way, a picket pin is something you drive into the ground and tie your horse to. It's a big, just a big steel like a spike you know so that's why these these uh, things were shaped um, and, and it could accommodate quite easily a bayonet so 
that's the uh, that's the story on those so if you have one no it is not original scabbard it may very well have been made it up by surplus dealers or I believe there's a possibility that um, that's how they were used when they were brought out of retirement uh, for training purposes for World War One. So there you go. Okay, was the 1858 Remington revolver issued spare cylinders in the Civil War or afterward? Um, you know, I, I think that they've uh, they've done some archival research, and while you see that in the movies, you know, somebody carrying the spare cylinders, um, and you see some of the, you know, there's there's actually some belt pouches for them and, and a few things. Uh, I think those belt pouches are post Civil War commercial that you see mostly. Um, there's no there's no evidence that the Ordnance Department bought spare cylinders, so. The cylinders they bought were replacement cylinders for guns where it had been lost or damaged or something. But no, they did not issue you a revolver and two extra cylinders. They just didn't do that. There's just no, there's no, if, if they did that, they would have had to have purchased a lot more cylinders and they just didn't. They just didn't. So we know that that's, that's kind of a post-Civil War, more likely invention of television and the movies. Uh, are AKs, Kalashnikov rifles, uh, super reliable? I've seen some videos where they are not very reliable. Uh, first of all, I would say that all those videos are garbage, okay? And here's why they're garbage. They're almost always, I mean, and I could probably say they're always, they're testing a civilian compliant copy of the weapon it may look just like an AK of whatever vintage you want whether it's an AK-47 or AKM or AK-74 it can look just like one but it's really not one in in the strictest strictest sense because you're getting the civilian copy. It even goes with the AR-15, you know, SP-1. It's not an M-16. It's it's something else. So, and with AKs, you have this problem. AKs, AR, actually almost all of them. You have a problem that they are not, you know, they're not made by the state factory. They didn't pass uh, military acceptance. So, you're... you're you know you're going to get a variety of results and whether or not they're indicative of the whole class of weapon that's up to you so now the place where you can see them is like for the most part m1 garands 1903 springfields you can get a usgi copy of these things uh, also some of the foreign a lot of the foreign uh, military um, you know the early semi-automatics and all that. the The only problem I would say with that is then you're you're now looking at guns that are sixty to eighty years old. So you know, are they have they been? When was the last time they were serviced, looked over by an armorer, uh, checked out, and all the rest of that? So uh, you know, again, are they indicative of of do they? Is it just a one-off? Is it just anecdotal or is it indicative of the entire 
class of those weapons. And, and you know, you have to make up your own mind on that. Um, a lot of these weapons, you know, they take shortcuts on. Uh, some of them don't have chrome chambers and bores, and some of them may be made with, you know, actually parts that didn't pass military inspection. You know, yeah, there, there's, there's that whole there's that whole thing they could have been built out of a parts kit that was that's got a lot of wear i mean there's a whole lot the 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 new receivers uh, may not be dimensionally exact they may not be fabricated to the same standard i mean there's all these things now i'm not i'm not throwing shade on them i think for the most part they're all pretty good but you know i, I you can't judge the reliability of a weapon by what people do to it on YouTube because a lot of times that's not how it would actually get treated and 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 everything else so um, I take those things with a big grain of salt that's that's really all I can say okay here is another this is actually a really good question why was the Colt SP1 carbine not more popular it had a lot of attributes of the M4 carbine Deck, which appeared decades later. Uh, the the one they're talking about is the um, telescoping stock. It's called the SP1. It's called the SP1 carbine. Um, it it has a 16 inch pencil barrel, but it has the short hand guards and gas system. They were put out by Colt for a bunch of years. It has an a. It's it's got of course the. Uh, um, it's a carry handle gun. Uh, a1 style a very very good weapon uh, very very good weapon in many ways it was the pro and, and of course it was molded on the military XM 177 you know that that was a that that was the carbine version of the m16 um, but that had actually a shorter barrel and a longer really long uh, flash suppressor on it uh, the SB1 carbine had a standard flash suppressor on a 16-inch barrel, so it, it was a very, very good um, right carbine, very lightweight. I'll tell you this right now: it'd kick ass on one of those stupid what would stoner do rifles, just as far as reliability and durability went. It was great. It had a two-position telescoping stock that was made out of aluminum. Um, you know, it did. It did in some ways as far as the envelope the stock and a few things it did kind of uh, have very very a lot of features that were carried over into the m4 so the question is why wasn't it more successful why didn't people just say ah we want those because they're better when it came out in the late 70s early 80s um everyone was still fascinated with 30 cal the one shot one kill they, you know, the Springfield Armory M1A was considered the the ultimate or at least penultimate uh, military rifle. Um, it, it was just well ahead of its time and people didn't realize it's how positive its attributes were because there was not uh, a lot of rifle, tactical rifle competition or anything. So a lot of people saw it kind of as the 5.56 version that was that was equivalent to a mini 14 or a an m1 carbine it just wasn't seen as being a serious um weapon which was a mistake because you know it took us it took 
20 some years later and the here we have the m4 you know which is essentially in many ways the same the same rifle uh, the the humorous part of this is is that when they came out they were competitively priced with the mini 14 and it was a of course a much better rifle because it benefited from all of the military development that had gone into the m16 series so the uh the SP-1 carbine was an outstanding, and it is still an outstanding uh, rifle. I'd rather have one of those than a what would Stoner do, you know, that that foolish thing that I guess is embroiled, is still embroiled in lawsuits and everything else. But um, yeah, if you get a chance, Google SP-1 carbine, and you'll see what it is. It's, uh, you know, by today's standards, it's the antiquated part is, um, pencil barrel, um, the A1 style carry handle, and the two position telescoping stock. Um, and it had no forward assist. It was like the rest of the commercial a, uh, Colt AR-15s at that time had no forward assist. So a very, very good, very, very good weapon. Um, yeah, I like it. I like it quite a bit. Very lightweight. So older you get, lightweight is, has got a beauty all of its own. Uh, next question. Have you seen the World War II Japanese copy of the M1 Garand rifle? You know, I, I've seen pictures of them, and one was for sale at an auction years and years and years ago. Of course, I didn't have the money to buy it. But, um, you know, I, I, I did find them rather intriguing. Uh, they were a comparatively close copy of the M1 um, the, the differences, as I remember them, is they had uh, Arasaka-style uh, swivels. They had a grasping groove on the uh, forearm. It had a 10-round uh, stripper clip-fed um, integral box magazine. It didn't use the M-block clips. And the rear sight was a tangent sight. And the front sight was similar to an M1, but it was it was very Japanesey, you know, kind of. The wings were a little more angular and things, so it did not. It was not a direct copy of the uh, M1 front sight, but it was very similar in in form and function. And it was uh, uh, it was 7.7 Japanese. Uh, now you know they had two types of 7.7. One was almost exactly a 303 British and the other was rimless and this this one I believe took the rimless round of course you know at the time I didn't have the money to buy it and I really didn't have the interest to buy it I understand only 200 of these things were made and only like 50 of them were assembled the rest of them were just parts so it, it appears that it was a it was never that the Jap the Japanese had no industrial capacity left towards the end of the war. Um, you know, when the Hiroshima bomb was dropped, we had already firebombed 60 Japanese cities, and you know we just we're, we were just going down the list. So, um, you know, there wasn't the industrial capacity left to re-equip the Japanese army or even any with any reasonable number of these things. I think it was kind of an experimental to see if they could make it and somehow if they survived the war by a negotiated peace or something they probably would have uh, put it into some sort of limited production but as it was it, it was just uh, these things were discovered at a naval base in Japan and and uh, quickly picked up and kind of evaluated looked at and 
I think a lot of the rifles that they rarely come up for sale, but when they do, um, because they weren't serially marked or anything, they they could be assembled just out of the parts that were, were made. I don't know that there's any real way to know that, unless you have a provenance for the rifle saying it was picked up, turned into a U.S. ordinance, which looked at it and tested it and then, you know, disposed of it, sold it, got rid of it. So, yes, I have seen them. Uh, you know, I, I, I think... Uh, um, the M1 was a great system and they probably realized that and they probably, this is clearly an indication that they realized how superior the M1 rifle was. That to me is the importance of the, of the World War II Japanese copy. Okay, what is your assessment of German small arms during World War II? Well, I, I, I can small arms covers a lot of things i'll just go with rifles and pistols i think the 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 uh, myth of the germans is that they had all these super weapons when in fact they absorbed massive quantities of weapons from the countries they conquered so when you look at where were their small arms uh was it a was it a success or a failure I would say that, you know, I don't know that they had the the production within the borders of Germany to supply their own army. And that's that's why they, you know, it was so important for them to to get the Czech Mausers and, and they, they absorbed all kinds of handguns and they had the FN factory cranking things out for them. So um, I think their designs were pretty good. Um, a P38 pistol probably being the best of their pistols. Um, just, yeah, the, the P38 was, was really a very good service pistol. Um, the rifles all kind of, the bolt action rifles are just, they are what they are, you know, they're bolt action rifles. Um, the STG44 is kind of an awkward gun, but it was definitely, definitely the way of the future. Uh, their semi-automatic 8mm, 8x57 Mauser rifles. Um, yeah, they were just, they kind of, they were, again, they were what they were. They, they fundamentally worked, and there was nothing really wrong with them, but they really weren't earth-shattering. And they were never issued in the kind of numbers that would make a difference. So, you know, I would say that you you, you push the, the myth aside, and, you know, it's... I don't know. I would say unimpressive, but not a failure by any means. But it wasn't. It wasn't all that impressive. I would have to say that. That's my thing. Um, you know, uh, machine guns and all that are. That, that's a discussion for a different days. So, just talking about the stuff that most soldiers got their hands on. Um, you know, was what it was. Okay. Here is our next question. Should the U.S. have adopted the Sten gun in World War II? Um, you know, on the surface, you'd say, no, why would you want to do that? You know, it was kind of this, you know, very cheap last-ditch weapon. But we should have, it should have been, it was considered. Um, you know, it, it would not have been a bad thing. It would not have been a bad thing. The Sten gun is not nearly as bad as what people say it is it would have given us you know interchangeability with the british and french we could have 
we should have put it into production and given it to the free French like crazy. That would have been that would have been a good deal. Just to do that, it was worth putting into production and kind of adopting as foreign military aid type of deal. We could have equipped we could have equipped a lot of people with them uh, toward 1944, 1945, 1946 when we had to, you know, do, you know, kind of help some countries that were flat on their back. Uh, kind of get up and running militarily it would have been a really good weapon for that so for that reason I would say yes absolutely for US service I don't think it would have been a bad idea I think it would have been um, you could only have one so it's either that or the grease gun and I I think the grease gun was an an outstanding weapon so and the nice part about the grease gun is then it, when you you would not be adopting a new cartridge nine millimeter so you know the Thompson stayed in service because there was still ammo for them so um, you know if you adopt the Sten gun all of a sudden the Thompson's now become a problem because the only 45 ammunition you have in the system is for 1911 pistols and you know you've added another caliber so i guess the u.s was going to stay with 45 acp no matter what but we should have we should have produced scads of sten guns because a lot of countries bought them at the end of uh or used them uh, after world war ii i mean the british developed it used it into the 50s the uh israelis used it Finns used it they were used in just all over places where countries needed weapons right away they they got stens from the british and and uh would have gone but we we could have used them um to arm allied forces uh like the filipinos you know we could have we could have armed had as we're taking the philippines uh we could have armed Fili filipino police and and uh things like that with them so yeah it would have been actually a really good idea to do that all right is the m203 grenade launcher a good weapon um the m203 is a 40 millimeter grenade launcher that is attached to the bottom of an m16 rifle um it's it's a good weapon because it gives you a, a grenade launching capability and all those wonderful things I personally, and this is personal, have never liked them because it makes the rifle awkward to shoot. It's awkward to carry. Um, but in a in a squad, in a rifle squad and rifle platoon, it makes sense to have them because it gives you an explosive projectile capability um, right then and there. And and they're effective too. They're they're good. Um, and they're a lot easy. They they are easier than the old M79, which was just a launcher with a stock on it. Uh, you don't have to carry another weapon. You have two weapons melded into one. But they're not um, they're not particularly um, they're not a lot. They're they're not a fun weapon to, to haul around, and they're awkward and and uh, and all that. But I I kind of like it. Um, um, you know, it, it does have the use. So there you go. But um, personally i i have fired them i have carried them and i've never liked it <laughs> it's uh um they got they've got some recoil to them uh but i've never cared for it so um anyway it's a good weapon but it's not one that i personally care for 
Well, that's it for another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And uh, as always, any questions or comments can go to kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or on the comments section of Podbean. But until next time, this is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>